You're listening to The Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org lenses. Hey, good evening, everybody. I'm Adam Plant. It's nice to see you. Some of you I know, others of you I don't. Let me start by introducing my friend Bruce Ely. <laughs> Bruce is, um, I'm not overselling this. He is literally the foremost expert on issues of state and local taxation in the country. So, like, this is going to be really substantive. And I can tell by the looks on your faces that you are so excited about this because I'm excited. <laughs> well, Don Wood is anyways. That's all right. it really counts. You know, I have, a, I have at least one CPA in the room. So, um, it, taxing is kind of like tithing, but for government instead of the church, Danny. I thought you'd, you'd like that. Uh, and... Bruce knows as much about this as anybody in the country. He has an undergraduate degree and a law degree from the University of Alabama and the University of Alabama School of Law. He's got an LLM from New York University's tax program, which is the foremost tax program in the country. Uh, Bruce was even awarded the Frankel Award in 2013, which is uh, for career achievement in state and local taxation. It's called being old. Well... I didn't say that. Um, And so as you can see from our screens up there, the title of our program is Rendering to Caesar, Loving Your Neighbor, and Doing for the Least of These. This is going to be a two-part lenses session. The first part is tonight. It's mainly diagnosis, right? Uh, Explaining to you the, the policy and the math of taxation here in Alabama. When you talk about taxes, everybody thinks, oh, April 15th. Well, actually, you interact with the government and its taxing power in a lot of different ways. You've got property tax, you've got income tax, you've got sales tax, even when you go to the grocery store or go to a restaurant on your food. So what we did is we narrowed the focus of this down. We're not talking about federal tax issues at all. That's for somebody else to get really passionate about. What we're going to talk about is taxation imposed by the state of Alabama, okay? Uh, And so the concept of tonight is based on the former state motto, which is, here we rest, here we rest. Such a lovely state motto, wasn't it? Uh, That was our first state motto from 1868 to 1939, and you'll love this. Our first state motto, here we rest. Nobody has any clue really where that came from because people who are experts in the Muscogee dialect don't really know what it was. It was either meant, you know, Alabama, placed by the water, whatever, but nobody really knows where it came from. So in typical Alabama fashion, we have a state motto that nobody's really sure where it came from. Um, So, Bruce, let's talk about the scriptural foundations of the topic a little bit. Yeah, let me cover the first two. Let's... let's, um Let's read this together, y'all, okay? Mark twelve seventeen. Ready? Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, the same verse is almost identical as Matthew twenty two, fifteen through 22. So it's, whenever you see it twice in Synoptic Gospels, it's really important. Even once, right? But twice, it's really important. And there's similar verses all over the place like this. The other one that I thought was interesting that we had in a men's Bible study here a few weeks ago was Romans 13. 
submit yourself to the governing authorities. There's no authority except that which God has established. And you're going, Obama? Uh, and this is also why you pay taxes uh, for the, the authorities of God's service. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. Now, nobody likes that phrase, uh, that part, Adam. I mean, and I'm a tax attorney. I represent taxpayers. I butt heads with the IRS, Department of Revenue, City of Birmingham, you name it. Uh, and I say, look, I can be a Christian and absolutely follow that verse, and so can you. Because the key is to pay taxes... The, the other phrase literally is the taxes that you owe. You don't pay whatever they tell you to pay. You pay what you legally owe. And so I remind Christians, uh, we're not just milk toast. I mean, we, we prepare a tax return. We take the maximum amount of deductions we can, right, Danny? Parsonage allowance, whatever you need to do. And the, the deductions are available. You need to claim, you know? Uh, where, where the rubber meets the road, though, is where a taxpayer has kind of forgotten to report some things in their tax return, uh, whatever. Now, here's another one I just love, and, and, and Adam will probably flinch, but this is what I like. All right, how many of you have heard that Amazon.com is going to start charging you sales tax effective November 1st? Now, how many of you were unhappy about that? Okay, now, how many of you know since 1939 you've owed sales tax on those purchases, except you have to send it in yourself? Now, I'm not going to ask you how many of those, how many of you send it in yourself? There is a line on the Alabama tax return, line 28A, that allows you to pay your 4% to the state every year. Now, since I get audited by the Department of Revenue, since the commissioner loves me every year, I put something in that return. It's usually when I find how much Karen's been spending on the granddaughters. When I ask her how much, how much we should put on that line, they go, really? We bought that many dresses? Uh, but uh, that's a classic case. That's a tax that we all owe. But how many of us really comply with that? Think about the money, though. Medicaid, $175 million deficit. This one tax, this one tax will bring in between 160 and $180 million a year. And guess who's paying it? Us. <laughs> Us. Because there's that much money involved here, folks, because of, of Internet and catalog purchases. Is that a tax that we owe? Yeah. Even if they don't take it from us, frankly, we owe it personally uh, every year. Uh, be it Jefferson County, City of Birmingham, Shelby County, whatever. But there's a good example of a tax that we owe that it's not really enforced. But now with Amazon uh, and Overstock and, and several of my clients, uh, it's going to start being enforced. But the good news is most of that money goes to education, public education. So there are trade-offs here, folks. Adam? I told you he was the best, right? <clears throat> the next two are Mark 12, 29 through 31. Jesus replied, this is the most important commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love your, and the second is like, oh, hang on. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Next we have Matthew twenty five forty, And the king will answer them, truly I say unto you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That's something that's going to be a recurring theme. So we're really laying the foundations. Now, a little story on Adam. Uh, I didn't realize Adam had such a passion about this. I have been through the tax reform war since, I don't know, honey, since we got married, at least since 1990. And I was pretty, maybe not bitter is the phrase, but just tired or frustrated. 
And then I find Adam, who has been involved in this from his law review days with Professor Hamill, who used this phrase in her groundbreaking research on all this. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm thinking, wow, somebody else actually uh, is interested in this again. And, and I'm, I'm not sure whether bless him or curse him for being up here for doing this, but uh, he has such a passion and knowledge about this stuff. It's just, it, it just excited me again after 13 years at least, if not more. All right, the last verse, Galatians 2.10, we picked this up in a men's Bible study too. And this is Paul uh, speaking to the pillars of the church, right? Peter, James, John. Uh, and And they say, say to Paul, all we ask is that you continue to remember the poor. And Paul says, the very thing I'm eager to do. So I think that emphasizes, and there are probably a dozen, and I told Adam, I spent all afternoon carrying those, you can find a dozen more verses that say the same thing, but we just thought these are some of the key verses. So, Another important thing to know is how we got here, right? And you can't understand where we are without knowing where we've been. Almost every law and rule in the state of Alabama is rooted in the Alabama Constitution of 1901. Uh, something that you may not know is that it is probably the longest constitution in the the world. Um, When when the Alabama Constitution of 1901 was designed and drafted at the Constitutional Convention, it was done with the express intent to centralize power in the legislature in Montgomery to constrain the legislature even further by keeping people from being able to pass a lot of laws. So you had to get a lot of... um, actual public referenda, public votes to amend the Constitution, which is why it's so long. Disproportionately, the Constitution of 1901 was designed to disenfranchise and to create a permanent underclass of poor white folks and black people. That's a fact. If you don't believe me, check the minutes. Uh, In volume one of the official proceedings of the Constitutional Convention, it said, and I quote, The conventioner's purpose was within the limits imposed by the federal constitution to establish white supremacy in this state. This is our problem, and we should be permitted to deal with it unobstructed by outside influence. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the original sin of the state of Alabama. In 1901, we set up an express constitution uh, where, by law, we were trying to cut parts of the state out of power and participation. Um, Article 14, Section 256, nothing in this Constitution shall be construed as creating or recognizing any right to education or training at public expense. This is a provision that was designed to do exactly what it said to do, which is not to create any right for any child in the state of Alabama to be educated at state taxpayer expense, period. You have no right to that, at least not under the Alabama Constitution. Yes, but we knew... who it was targeted for, of course. Right. Uh, And you also need to know that Article 11, Section 11, provides that property taxes are what are used for the maintenance of schools. So you have no right to a public education, and the way we fund it is through property taxes. Now, uh, one thing we didn't add here, which is a good thing, is Alabama has a balanced budget amendment, right? I mean, that's why we have this thing called proration and these issues. But at least we don't owe $4.X trillion in debt like the federal government. federal government just continues to mint money and borrow and borrow. If you're watching this continuing resolution debate that's on uh, C-SPAN today, and 
I'm one of those weird people that actually walks, watch the C-SPAN. I don't know why, but nothing ever happened, it seems like. But the CR that's being voted on, you know, the de- we'll get into the deficit numbers that will blow you away. But I'm thankful that Alabama has a balanced budget amendment, Adam. I mean, that's that's a good thing part of the Constitution. Now, we have 746 amendments, 746 amendments to the Alabama Constitution. You know, if I want my dog spayed, I have to pass an amendment. Almost. It's that bad. I mean, there, and there's some cities, if they want a, a, an animal control ordinance, you have to go to the legislature and have the entire legislature, not just the Jefferson County delegation, everybody vote on whether you have an animal control ordinance in Jefferson County or Shelby County or whatever. And then it goes to a vote of the people on the next, yeah. round, the next yeah. ballot. Yeah. I mean, have you all ever looked at, I mean, really read that stuff on a ballot? Now, a lot of you, my mother-in-law include, just votes no, just absolutely because she, I don't understand it, no. Well, I usually vote yes because I'm thinking the legislature voted on this. They probably know more about it than I do. And, and even though it's in deals with Escambia County, who am I, you know? Who am I? You know, maybe I just don't vote. But, you know, look at these next, this next ballot in November. Please go vote. November. Bruce, let's give them the really interesting stuff about the lid bill and mills. Oh, yeah. Because this, this is, is fantastic. This will blow you away. Um, and unfortunately, my law firm was involved in drafting that for certain uh, property interests. And let me say first out the outset, I'm not here on behalf of my law firm, University of Alabama School of Law, Parka, uh, NYU, or, or, or probably even Karen tonight. Maybe, you know, we'll see. <laughs> She'll let me in. So I don't want to be burned at the stake after this. Within this provision is this thing called Amendment 373 called the Lid Bill, adopted in 1978, not 01, 78. And it came, what, what do you think created that? Why did they pass that bill? Those pony-headed federal judges, uh, they, they passed this bill. It's four classes of property. Uh, residential is called Class 3. And you first classify the property, then you look at the millage rate, and then you look at valuation. So it's a three-factor formula, right? The class, four classes, whatever the millage rate is for this stuff, and it's capped in the Constitution all different rates. And, you know, and then what's the value? So every, every year your house is, quote, appraised by the county tax assessor, right? Now, what, what always kills me is whenever, it, whenever we need money for schools, what is the first thing everybody votes for usually? A sales tax. Well, we're at 10%. In some of the places, we have one of the highest sales taxes in the country. But you talk about property tax, like whoa, no, oh, can't do that, whoa, and it just blows me away because if you if you look at how much it affects the normal house, I ran a number, and we we put some numbers here at the bottom. A one mill increase, uh, Alabama's capped at six and a half mills. That's it, six and a half mills. That is sixty-five cents per hundred dollars of value. So. If you, raise, if you raise this by one mil statewide, you raise $56 million statewide. If you raise five mils, you raise $280 million. Now, how does that affect you and me? Let's say you're in a good part of Estavia Hills. You have a $200,000 house. You know how much a five mil increase would affect your property tax? I ran it. Anybody any guess? $200,000 house, five mil increase for education. <laughs> it's a hundred dollars, Tracy. It's a whopping hundred dollars a year. Uh, but look at the numbers that are raised when you go statewide with that. It's amazing. Uh, but 
and again, people just don't like property taxes, right? Now, we'll talk about it. We are number 50 or number one, however you want to call that, in property tax uh, because people just don't like property tax in Alabama. Uh, I did, I spent about six months researching all of this in the Constitution. And if you'd like a copy of, of this article, it's, it's, it actually has some kind of pretty charts in here anyways, um, on, on the comparison of the Alabama Constitution to all the other state constitutions, particularly in the Southeast, to show you how bizarre our Constitution really is compared to anybody else's, literally anybody else. We have the longest Constitution in the, in the United States, and we think in the world. I, I can't speak to, like, Sumatra, uh, uh, but uh, as far as we know, we have the longest Constitution in the world. And, and you've seen uh, uh, these Constitutional Conventions. The, the reason I was brought in and hired by the legislature uh, was to look at making recommendations to the legislature for cleaning up all the tax stuff on our Constitution. All this stuff is built in. For example, the personal exemptions on your income tax are in the Constitution. And they started in 1939. Do you think your exemptions might be a little low today? Now, the legislature stepped in with a wink and a nod and raised exemptions twice in 60 years. Do you think the exemptions might need to be indexed for, like, inflation? You know? I mean, think about it. Alabama, this is one of our regressive taxes we'll talk about. You start paying Alabama tax a lot quicker on the income chart than you do federal tax, right? It drives my son crazy when he pays $86 in Alabama tax and nothing to the feds because these personal exemptions are built into our Constitution, and they're raised only rarely. Uh, but again, we'll, we'll talk about some examples. But again, if you'd like a copy of this article, uh, I'll send it to you. Just send an email to me, and I, I, you know, I'd love to hear your comments uh, don't read this late at night, please, please. True story. When I was in law school, we had to take federal income tax as one of our first year courses. I always put my federal income tax reading off until right before bed. In the event that I was too stressed out to sleep, that always like totally cured it. I mean, no insomnia ever. We, I, I give you some other resources. I'm also, uh, again, I don't represent Parker. I'm vice chairman of Parker, our, our Sanford University think tank, and they have some great research on there. Again, don't believe us. Look at this stuff yourself. And as a matter of fact, on the handouts on the table, we gave you four websites that you can check. Uh, there's PARCA, the Legislative Fiscal Office, the Alabama Policy Institute, and Alabama Arise, all of which have ample information for you to choose from. Absolutely. And the PARCA report is being updated, should be ready in about six weeks, I'm told. Why don't you tell them about the chart? And how we compare. All right. Let's uh, look at the um, chart, please. Okay. We can't f cover all this. This is a Parker chart, not mine, not Adam's, uh, showing the tax revenue per capita, which means if we have about 4.6 million uh, documented us, and I'll tell you, the numbers you hear about undocumented aliens in Alabama are way low, way low. I'm telling you, there are a lot more undocumented illegal aliens in Alabama than you ever realize. So let's say we're really about 4.8 million, 4.9 million. So this is the amount of revenue the state brings in every year divided by per person, okay? Now, where do you think Alabama falls on that chart? You see Alabama there? Well, we're not on the first page. Not on I'm the guessing first page. it's pretty low, Let's Bruce. go to the second page. Whoop, where we are. So, you know, and people complain about taxes. I'm going, you're right. Blame the federal government. Yeah. There we rest. 
right there at the bottom. <laughs> we, we are number one or number 50, depending on how you, how you want to call that. So think about this chart as we walk through here. This, I, I, one of my themes is you got it better than you think you do in Alabama. Yeah, so let's talk about that. I mean, for us to know where we are, we have to have a clear-eyed view of what we've got. Um, there's one quote from Forbes that I'm going to read directly from them because it's too good to cut. Alabama is a political hot mess right now. The heads of all three branches of state government are facing legal trouble and removal from office. The state has experienced multiple budget shortfalls in recent years and raised taxes in 2015, making Alabama an outlier in a region filled with states reducing tax burdens and reforming government. Every state bordering Alabama has a superior business tax climate, according to the Nonpartisan Tax Foundation. In fact, most of those neighboring states have recently passed tax policy changes that will increase their competitive advantages over Alabama. That was Forbes in June of 2016. Now, I want to give you the good and bad. I work, I mean, I was involved with recruiting Mercedes, which I will defend to the death as being one of the best investments we ever made, Right. Hyundai and Honda, some other uh, projects we've worked on. But let's look at some of the statistics that are not related to automotive manufacturing or Austell or, or whatever. We're 41 in GDP growth. These are recent numbers from BBJ as of June 6, right? 43 in business startup activity, which surprised me. I would have said we were maybe top 15. Uh, 47th in annual median in household income. 47th. 45th in unemployment rate, right? 45th in state budget surplus versus deficit. We don't have a surplus. You look to Tennessee, they've got a $250 million surplus. We have, you know, we're going, we're happy just to come out zero at the end of the year, right? Uh, the other thing I thought was interesting was uh, they point out that Alabama spent $3.5 billion in subsidies for companies to locate in Alabama. That's Mercedes, that's that's a lot of companies here. Well, why do we do that? Well, every state offers tax incentives. Trust me, every state has to. Uh, Alabama has to offer a little bit more because a lot of times that's what seals the deal. It's not the key, I'll tell you that. But sometimes with our job training program, which is the best in the country, and our uh, Greg Canfield and the economic developers are the best in the country, you know, we get past some of these things. And they use job training to to... to overcome the deficit in education of many of these kids who they employ. They do specific job training, which is great. So we're ranked in the, we're the number six state in the country for doing business, for coming to Alabama and doing business. We're number six. That's great. Okay, but remember, all these other statistics are floating around at the same time. So I, I want to give you a balanced view of all these numbers. Adam? Yeah, as the bearer of bad news, uh, we don't fund mental health adequately. In fact, AL.com and the Birmingham News, Huntsville uh, Times and the Mobile Paper, did a survey of sheriffs in the state of Alabama. 70% of those surveyed had someone in lockup that should have been in a mental health facility. They're doing things they're not equipped to do. It's bad for kids because since 2008, the percentage of children living in poverty in Alabama has increased by 27%. That was as of June. Uh, in 2014, 375,000 Alabama kids, that's kids age 18 and under, received uh, SSI, cash public assistance, or food stamps or SNAP benefits in the past 12 months. 375,000 kids 18 and under. Uh, between 
2010 and 14, 192,000 Alabama kids lived in, lived in census tracts with poverty rates of 30% or more. You can see the rest of the stats, including our infant mortality rate, which is 8.7% per 1,000 live births. We're fourth worst in the country in infant mortality. That is not setting our children up for success. And when you are born in Alabama, if you live in one of those census tracts where there is endemic poverty, you are less likely to be able to move up, down, or out because the way you move up, down, or out in a modern economy is through education. And in Alabama, you have no right to an education and it's funded poorly. So here's one that that really shocked me. Um, uh, Governor Riley spoke to a group on Friday and I was in the audience. And I I do some uh, work for AOSF, which is one of the scholarship granting organizations that are used to fund the movement of low-income children from a failing public school to either a private school or a or a good public school. We, we fund kids to math and science, school of fine arts, these things. And I say we because they're next to the church. They're my second favorite charity. Maybe the granddaughters being second, but third maybe. But they told me Friday they had they had fifteen thousand applications from low-income families, eighty percent of which are minority, by the way. 15,000, minority being not only black but Hispanic, 15,000 kids have applied for scholarships to, to get out of a failing public school. Now, Adam and I have talked about this. I'm not worried about our kids, you know. We've got great schools right here. But you get outside this, this little, the pale, as they used to say in Ireland, get, out, you know, get beyond the pale, the, the, the protected environment, and the statistics are, are mind-numbing. But 15,000 low-income kids applied for scholarships to get out of a failing, a certified failing public school. Now, that is defined as the lowest 5%, just the lowest 5% of public schools in the state. That's it. Those are the only ones who are certified as failing. We could tell you more stuff about this, like how we're the only one of 13 states that tax groceries. But let's, let's do a little counterfactual for the sake of saving time. In 2003, September 9, 2003, there was a vote on something called Amendment 1, which proposed by, was proposed by Governor Bob Riley, which would have reshaped the Alabama tax code. And that amendment, which Bruce helped draft and which he worked very hard on, um, got kilt at the ballot box. That's a te- technical term. It lost by double. 886,860 folks voted against Amendment 1, and only 417,721 folks voted for it. I was one of the 417,721 that voted for it. Bill Moyers, who is a uh, a television reporter, did a story on it not long after Amendment 1, which we're going to show you a little something from the Bill Moyers show. Inequality takes on special meaning in Alabama where over 40% of families earn less than $35,000 a year, and one-fifth of the children live in poverty. Here, the state tax system itself is weighted against the poor. We've had extremely low property taxes in the state of Alabama, on one hand. And secondly, we've had a regressive tax structure on the other hand. And that regressive tax structure has really penalized the poor. The tax structure is regressive because the people with less money pay three times as much of their income in taxes as do those with the highest income. 
most of the tax burden is a sales tax. And in Alabama, even food is taxed. People spend, you know, poor people spend 25% of their income on food. When it comes to state income tax, the lowest earners, two-thirds of Alabama's population, pay 11% of their income in taxes. In contrast, the wealthiest 1% pay less than 4%. Alabama's been called an economic plantation. For example, trees cover more than 70% of the state, and forestry is Alabama's leading industry. Yet timber and paper companies contribute less than 2% of all property tax revenue. Meanwhile, Alabama's families are taxed on earnings as low as $4,600 a year. Even by the standards of the poor southern states, this is extreme. In Mississippi, next door, you pay no income taxes until you earn $19,000. We have not changed that tax structure since 1933. Why would anyone in 2003 want to hold on to a Depression-era tax structure. Last May, after just five months in office, Governor Riley decided drastic changes were needed. He unveiled a tax reform plan that would ask the well-to-do to shoulder more of the state's tax burden. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a defining moment in the history of Alabama. Riley had served in Congress and had been voted the most conservative member of Congress for his anti-tax record. Now, as governor, he said he had no choice. The state was facing a record-breaking budget shortfall. When we came into office, we inherited a budget that is $675 million in the hole. Riley decided against cutting vital services to fill the hole in the budget. Instead, he proposed raising Alabama's taxes to a record $1.2 billion a year, an amount he said would make up the shortfall as well as reform a state government infamous for pork barrel spending and inefficiency. If you look at the package, there is more reform in this one vote than I think all of the reform that we've seen in Alabama over the last 40 years. Tammy, what did you choose for the simple subject? For Riley, improving education was key. $300 million would be used to revitalize schools in a state where funding for education ranks near the bottom of the 50 states. A bad what? The state's illiteracy rate is as high as 25%. If you want to have a Cadillac program, you can't operate on a horse and buggy budget. James Carter is the superintendent of schools in Selma. We were asking teachers and principals and, and certainly staff to do more with less. If this tax package doesn't pass, every program will have to be cut, including athletics including band and choir and these other extracurricular activities that we pay for now, uh, we simply could not afford. Under the governor's plan to be phased in over five years, if you own a home worth $80,000, the average in Alabama, your state property taxes would go up around $80 a year. Taxes on a quarter of a million dollar home would rise around $560. In contrast, homes valued at $50,000 or less would pay no property taxes to the state. Income taxes, too, would go up, but only for individual incomes over $75,000 and family incomes over $150,000. Those with earnings under $47,000 a year, more than half of Alabama's families, would pay less. 
I don't think this is a liberal or conservative policy. I think it's just a matter of basic fairness to charge someone an income tax that's making less than $5,000 a year, I just think is disproportionate. So I'd like to tell you that this has changed in the 13 years since that vote happened. But as you all know, when nothing changes, nothing changes. Uh, Governor Riley also left out one thing. It's, it's not a liberal issue or a conservative issue. It is math. And I realize this scares some people, but math is just what it is. It's not ideological. In Alabama, we have two budgets. We have the general fund budget and the education budget. Budgeting is based on projected revenue growth, and it's not based on revenues that we actually earned in the previous year. And when the state's projections don't match up with reality, then we have to do real-time budget cuts. Those are called proration. If you grew up with an educator as a parent, you are well acquainted with the term proration (laughs) because that means... Guess what? Mom's going to be spending all of her money on supplies for her classroom is what that means. Um, We've given you references again on the table to to walk through. We're not going to bore you with a lot of the gory details, but we want to show you how your money and our money gets spent. All right, let's go to a couple of pie charts. And let me, I want to go back to one point that I always ask my audiences. How many of you favor repealing the sales tax on groceries. Okay. Now, did you see how much that costs the state if you do that? It's about $700 million. That's city, county, state. $300 million or so at the state level. So the first question you say is, right, where do we make up the money? That's $700 million. Where does that come from? And I drafted a bill for the, for the uh, retail association, actually, that, that would have not cost the state so much money. I'll talk, I'll talk about it next week if you'd like to come back. But if you just repeal sales tax on gross now, remember that affects everybody, the underground economy, people driving through the state, whatever, okay? But that's how much money is at risk. And, you know, we are, we're constantly bashed about that one issue, constantly. But remember, there's a, there's a yin and a yang here I want you all to think about. There's some things I'd love to see done but we've got to figure out how to pay for them. And we say, well, cut, cut services. They've cut about a billion dollars uh, in the last four years of state services. And I'm starting to see that. I don't see as many state troopers. Maybe you'll like that. I, I really don't like Karen driving to, uh, to see the grandkids. I'd like to know there's a state trooper somewhere here and there to help her. Something happens, right? But, you know, that, they have been starving the beast, so to speak, for the last four years in Montgomery and have done... And what many say, I guess, Adam, was is a good job. But let's talk about, all right, you've been reading about Medicaid, haven't you? Everybody's been reading about Medicaid, right? Prisons and Medicaid. Look at the numbers here uh, of, of these. This is where money is appropriate. In other words, spent, okay? This is the outflow from the state. Medicaid is about now actually more. It's about 15.3%. Uh, education, 514 Corrections, uh, maybe 4.3, maybe a bit more. Um, so you see where the lion's share of the money is going to, Medicaid and education. Now, if you flip to But this is for both budgets, right? This is the general fund. This, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Both budgets. You're right. Good catch. Now, this is a year old now. 
Now, let me tell you, write these numbers down. They'll boggle your minds. Uh, the budget, and this is from OJ, the, the budget for next year is $6.3 billion with a B for education. Uh, it is $1.8 billion for everything else. See? Now, we'll talk about earmarking in a minute. But think about that. 6.3 is segregated for education. I'm not complaining about that. But then you say, oh, the general fund, which pays for everything else, Medicaid, state troopers, prisons, courts, DHR, courts, uh, whatever, is $1.8 billion. Therein lies the rub. You've heard about the earmarking and all this before in the press. So there's, there's a good illustration. All right, next one, education trust fund. Where do we get our money? Where does Alabama get its money? We're a little quirky here, as you probably sensed. Yeah. You're right on the money. Will they do it, though, Tracy? (laughs) Okay. I'm not holding Tracy to holding his breath on that. But you're right. Exactly exactly right. It's about 450B. And I'll show you some some sleight of hand with the federal government in a minute. All right. So income tax is about 62%. Most of all, that's individual. I have to be careful because I represent large corporations, small corporations. The corporate income tax is relatively small in Alabama, uh, not much. Sales tax is about 27% and rising. Again, once, once uh, Amazon comes online, overstock, some of these other folks, uh, that number is going to go way up. Uh, so we are a sales tax-driven state. We are number one. Two to four, depending on how you look at it, on the, the level of sales tax in the country. Hey, Bruce, what's that other down there in the bottom corner? Yeah, that's 1.3. That's all the other little things uh, that Education Trust Fund is spent on I mean, or, or bringing in. This is like the business privilege tax, your, your county business license. Some of those little bitty taxes here and there that kind of drive you crazy. And, and uh, your <laughs> avalorum tax, property tax. 1.3%. That's the six and a half mil cap tax. See? Hey, Bruce, uh, once Amazon and other online companies get the the bets are between 180 and 200 million a year. No, 180 million to 200 million a year. It's not, you know, but I mean that covers Medicaid. Yeah, boom. Don't need a lottery. I got chastised for saying that on TV. Don't need a lottery. You get you get Amazon. <laughs> so um, it's not a lottery. I get a book. So, and the education trust fund budget. Well, the <laughs> education budget. We want to know then what are we doing right? How are, how are we spending this? We're in the bottom 10 for instructional dollars, and we spend roughly 6.4% less today on education than we did in 2010. So, less. Yeah, less. the numbers drop it. And there's a great study that Parker did uh, called Exceeding Expectations, Keys to Alabama Student Success, which analyzed what the top school systems in the state did. The top 10 school systems that they evaluated were Mountain Brook, Vestavia Hills, City of Madison, Homewood, Auburn, Coleman, Muscle Shoals, Hoover, Arab, and Trustful. And if you ever want to not fall asleep reading something, go read that. 
Because that tells you exactly how these schools that are taking care of their students and educating them well do it and on what budget. And if you want to extrapolate that out statewide, it'll give you an indication of how much it would take to actually do that. That's right. And, and while you're at it, look at the, remember the millage rates. We'll talk about that in a minute. And see how they line up with these top ten. Just, just a hint. All right, am I on the next one here? Yeah. All right, next slide. Uh, here's another. This is general fund. This is the, the dump. This is the default fund, right? Not education, everything else. Look at all the various sources of revenue. And there are, nothing's big, really. You, we now have a look. The Amazon tax, Steve, actually is going to go to the general fund, which is great. The legislature has moved that money from education to sales tax to try to shore up the prisons and Medicaid, which is okay. Now, let me tell you all, here's, here's another myth that you probably have heard. And the media gets this all the time. Well, everything's earmarked by the Alabama Constitution of 1901 is terrible. No. The only thing that's earmarked by Constitution is the income tax and is earmarked, teachers, the phrase is for public school teachers' salaries only. Now, if you want to get, you know, if you really want to push that, all that money is for your salaries, period. Cannot be used for anything else. Well, guess what? It is. But that's the only tax earmarked in the Constitution. Everything is by statute, which means what? The legislature can change it. And they've done it with Amazon, for example, and Internet and catalog vendors by moving a lot of it to the general fund to shore up prisons and, and Medicaid, right? So, again, look at the, you know, the, none of these are huge revenue sources, not like the income tax or sales tax, right? But then let's take a look at the next slide, which gives you a, a representation of what the appropriations look like for this fiscal year. You look at the two big chunks, corrections and Medicaid. Those were 33% of the state budget in 1994. And in 2016, they're 60%. And those are only going to grow because we fund these at the bare minimum. If we cut Medicaid's funding, let's say you cut $1.20 from funding to Medicaid from the state of Alabama. You lose $2.40 in federal funding that's matching. So if you cut one, you lose two. That's not great math. Medicaid, one thing that you need to understand about that before we move to question and answer, to be eligible, if you're a childless adult, you are not eligible for Medicaid. If you are a low-income family with four people, you have to have a, an income per month of $194 or less. All kids age 6 to 19 are funded at 100% of the federal poverty level. And if you are 0 to 5 or a pregnant mother, you are funded at 133% of the federal poverty So if you're a third below the federal poverty level, which is, let's see here, I wrote it down here. Oh, yeah, for a family of four, that's $33,000 a year. If you make $33,000 a year in a family of four, you are eligible, kids zero to five, for Medicaid. Now, listen, Medicaid doesn't just cover those folks. It also covers children born with life-threatening, life-altering, or uh, traumatic diseases. So if you're a middle-class family here in Birmingham, a family of four, and you know that your kid is diagnosed with a birth defect, you know that there is a very good chance that you're going to need Essential services that could bankrupt you. It actually happened to one of my friends. She and her family had to go on Medicaid to fund their son's continuous care 
because otherwise not having this would have driven them into financial ruin. And choosing between treating your child's life-threatening illness and going into bankruptcy doesn't sound to me like a very good set of choices. Now, Jacob, do you want to do Q&A or do you want to do the, the group discussion first? And, and one thing I we want to leave for next week, by the way, is Jacob's getting ready. Now, let me ask you, and we'll talk about this next week, you think there's a correlation between Medicaid, corrections, and education? We'll show you that next week. Think about that. Go in Selma. Go in the Black Belt area. And if you don't see a correlation there, you have not stopped anywhere to look. Again, Investavia, Hoover, Mountbrook, we're fine. You know, your kid's going to be fine. But get outside the pale. Drive down to, to Hale County, Perry County, Sumter County, uh, Green County, especially Green County, and, and think if those three factors don't tie in, uh, correlate pretty closely with each other. And as Adam says, is a cycle upon a cycle of hundreds of years uh, of, of that kind of a generational deficiency. Jacob? In, in that vein, tell us the topics of what you're going to cover next week because some questions may be answered next week? Yeah, so uh, if this was here we rest, next week will be we dare defend our rights. Uh, It's going to look at, if tonight was diagnosis, next week is prescription. We won't tell you what to think, but we will explore how to think about a lot of these issues through the lens of the gospel. Okay. Uh, I have a thousand questions, but I'm going to let you guys go first. Uh, And don't worry, we will get to all of them until we don't. Anybody want to start? Uh, Who has a question? And there's no dumb question here, folks. Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure I took three accounting classes in college, so I understood all of this. Uh, So unless, but it's okay to ask a question. David, you go ahead and start us off. So I think I understood a lot of the pieces of what was being talked about here about this comparison, that comparison, this chart, that chart. But like, what's what's sort of the take-home message that you want, like the big picture that you want to leave us to leave with this information? The big picture that I want to leave you with is that we have created in our founding document original sin and everything that has followed that with regard to how we deliver services to all of our neighbors, to every image bearer of God in this state is broken. It's broken and every effort to try and redeem that has failed. This is the diagnosis part. And if you've got one eye and half sense, you can see that something's wrong. Adam, I'm going to ask you to be specific. That original sin, how would you name that? I'd name it as the Alabama Constitution of 1901, setting up a permanent system whereby black folks and poor white folks were discriminated against permanently by law. And everything that we designed the Constitution to do, it is doing. If you are a wealthy landowner, your interests are protected. Mm. If you can lobby to get a statewide ballot, voted yes or voted no, your interests are pretty well protected. 
But if you ever want to change this process, then you are disadvantaged. And so again, it's, not, it's not a stretch to call it racism and classism. It's more classism. I mean, it's not just blacks. It's poor whites as well as Hispanics. Uh, but again, it's, it's not a vestavia. You, I mean, you may, there's a lot of that that you don't see. But it's when you get outside our comfort zone and you drive south on, on 82 or 59 or whatever, and north as well. I mean, Madison County has a lot of this up there. It, it, that's, that's the problem is we have these, you know, top 10 schools all clustered here in Birmingham, right? One in, one in Huntsville as well or Madison, Coleman even. But when you get outside that school level, it just goes like that. And, and that's where my heart is. And that's why I love AOSF because they're granting scholarships to these kids in Selma and Red Bay and, and uh, Satsuma that have got to get out of a failing public school. Now, I get shot by AEA. AEA does not like me at all for that. That's okay. Uh, Bruce, I'm picking up that a lot of people don't like you. <laughs> you know, it's, at my age, it's okay. I'm a lawyer. What the heck? So my question is, given that it's set up so badly, how can we throw it out and start over? Because it seems like anything that you try to patch, or, or not you, but anything anyone has tried to patch or put a Band-Aid on specific bad parts is still not addressing the whole, that we shouldn't operate under something that's trying to keep anybody at a disadvantage and that's just not the way as people we should treat one another I don't mind paying taxes and I hear my kids they're already hearing the talk from other people that taxes are bad and I'm already starting to indoctrinate them with it's not bad I love everybody here I want you to have a police officer if you need one I want you to have a state trooper if you need one and roads for us to drive on are a good thing like it's part of us all taking care of each other not I don't know how do we change the culture of the state because people hear the word tax and they immediately go that the connotation there is bad Mm -hmm. it's just part of us taking care of each other now, well, I don't want to pay 99% of my money to taxes, but... Right. There's, there's got to be a discussion about somewhere between zero and everything. Um, I think that you're right. You're right. And a, a wise man once said, we're better together than we are alone. Wasn't that how you phrased it? Um, that was you. <laughs> Ever so often. Better, better together stuck. It was a good sermon series. Well, and, and let, me, let me be crystal clear about this. Adam and I had it, and the reason Adam sucked me into this was he said, you know, the millennials, they're the new generation. You get these guys energized, they'll do something. And that's why I'm excited to see a lot of millennials out here in the audience because you haven't heard this stuff. Remember, this last effort died 13 years ago. Where were you 13 years ago? Well, not that, Jacob. But So, I mean, it, it's been dead for 13 years. It, it, I mean, that's the last time we tried any major tax reform. And, again, the vote was, you know, two to one against. And, and I'll tell you this, having drafted only the good bills that saved you taxes. Only the good bills. Uh, you know, they, the governor just bit off too much. He bit off too much to didn't chew. 
and he started getting into areas that brought in a lot of very powerful special interests. And when you start getting talked badly about on talk radio, that's a bad thing. And that's what happened. They, just, they, they, they went for too large, I think, in, in retrospect. And I think it's time for a new movement here. And we'll talk about that next week. Question? Um, so I have a question in regards to the corrections. Do you know um, the ratio of the different races that are incarcerated? Oh, yeah. They don't, don't, but they're not. I mean, it's not surprising, right? So what, like an estimate? I can't estimate. I, I think but I can tell you this. If we don't fund corrections better, it is only by the grace of God and the kindness of our inmates that we haven't had multiple corrections officers killed in the state of Alabama. I used to work in the Alabama Attorney General's office, and the corrections officer to inmate ratio is appalling. It is an unsafe environment for our inmates, and it's an unsafe environment for our corrections officers. And it is, um, we have a tradition in this state. You know how Missouri is the show-me state? Alabama is the make-me state. And we don't change things oftentimes until a federal court enters a consent decree and says, you can't do this anymore. You have to change your conditions of confinement. You have to change your mental health system. The Wyatt versus Stickney case from 1978 changed the way we do mental health in Alabama, which has totally been undercut by funding cuts, right? So I would not be surprised if a federal district judge, Judge Myron Thompson from the Middle District of Alabama, entered a consent decree sometime in the next 12 months requiring Alabama to change its conditions of confinement because they don't rise to a level that satisfies the United States Constitution. And, and, and frankly, I mean, some legislators are saying, well, that's okay, then I'll have political cover. You know, another pointy-headed federal judge is ordered us to do that so we can blame him and then enact reforms. I don't like to wait like that. I don't know if you guys, but I mean, but the ratio in, in most prisons is about at least three to one, black to white, at least three to one. And again, tie in education, prisons, and Medicaid. They all work together, right? Okay. So um, I guess when he, I think someone asked about classism and racism. In 1901, I'm pretty sure that we weren't consider well, we weren't even able to vote, vote, and I mean, black people weren't. So why wouldn't you just call it racism and stay, instead of saying that it was classism? Because I don't even think we would even be considered a class. Well, because yeah. it's both. Yes. I mean, it's the way it's designed is first of all, there's the racial component where, by law, they were trying to write black people out of ever having the opportunity to change the state or be a valid presence. Right, that's the first thing. The second thing, this system was designed to favor wealthy landowners. The economy of Alabama in 1901 is a lot different from the economy of Alabama in 2016. But we have the same laws. It was designed so that the more land you held, the lower your property tax burden is. That used to benefit people who were directly involved in the agricultural economy. And that has shifted we have gone from more row crop based agriculture to 71% of the land mass of Alabama is covered by timber. And they provide 2% of 
of the property taxes. So when you have that wide a disparity, it's a very big built-in economic advantage if you're a large landowner. And if you didn't own land, that's the class element of it. Now, I, well, I'll save that for next week. And I know we're short on time, and you probably want to move into the group discussion now. Yeah. But before we do, I'd like to wrap up with one closing thought of my own. Bruce, and I didn't tell this story earlier, uh, the reason that I'm sitting here is because a few months ago, I couldn't sleep. I, I'd been watching all of the news reports regarding funding cuts to Medicaid and the lack of courage and will um, by some of our elected officials. And I kept thinking about my friend's kid and other kids like him. And I thought, we are quite literally going to choose to let people die. We're going to let people die rather than change the way that we do things. And I couldn't sleep that night. I was up, and at 3.25 a.m., I emailed Bruce. And I said, hey, can you send me a reprint of this? And listen, Bruce and I are friends, but Bruce and I ain't friends like that. <laughs> like, we, I should not have been emailing him at 3.25 in the morning. I call him Abby's husband. That's, that's, that's right. I'm Abby's him. husband. That's right. And, and that's, uh, that's, frankly, much more flattering than what most people say about me. Um, so, I, and he was like, you have got to be kidding me. I said, no, I'm not kidding. I want a reprint of your Cumberland Law Review article because I want to read it. I can't find it online. I used to have a copy. I don't have a copy anymore, whatever. And... So we got together over lunch, and we started talking about this, and this is something that burdens me. It burdens me. I literally could not sleep over this. And I hope that some of you, over the course of the next eight days, might wake up a little bit sweaty and a little bit anxious, too. Let's move into the group discussion, Jacob. Great. This summer, uh, our Young Professionals class went through calling and vocation, and walked away with a quote of, your, your calling or your vocation is your greatest passion and the world's greatest need. Uh, that one place, and I think it's really cool to see two guys filling out their Christian calling. So thank you very much. All right, let's gather together. In just a minute, we're going to close in a corporate prayer. Uh, until then, I would like to hear one or two things that came out of our group discussion, you don't have to recount everything, uh, but the themes or questions that uh, maybe that a good thing to come out of this is questions that you have going forward that you might want answers to or uh, anything like that. Does anybody want to share something? For- yeah, don't tread on me. That's right. Exactly. Uh, did you have one, Bradley? Uh, the qu- the question uh, that came up in the group that I sit in on as well, and I think that was uh, our question also. If you didn't hear Bradley, the tension between what's the government's role and uh, specifically caring for the orphan and the widow and the poor, and what's the church's role and how those two function differently. Good, thank you. What else uh, themes or questions that emerge from your group time? Yeah.
Yeah. Uh, we've all been to the DMV before and have those same questions, right? Uh, that, that's a punchline, but it's also a very real question. Yeah. Uh, what else? Yes. Okay. That's so generous of you to confess someone else's sin. That's so Actually, let's all do that. I didn't know oh, we were Okay. All right. Good. I didn't know we were doing confessional tonight. That's great. Uh yeah. Uh, that's good. That's good. Well, I'm excited about one. I'm excited to see people speaking out of their passions. I'm excited that we can have this conversation, that we can have disagreements and open our eyes and our hearts to for new information because uh, we're always pursuing Christ likeness. And sometimes we have real questions about what that looks like. Uh, to close together, we're going to pray a corporate prayer. It'll be two slides. Uh, I'm going to ask us to stand and read these corporately and then we will be dismissed. Let's pray together. God of mercy and justice, we pray. Give us your eyes to see our brothers and sisters as you see them. Cherish souls and your fears. Give us your ears to hear their story and respond with compassion and grace. Give us your hearts to be generous, loving, kind, and patient. Give us your strength to serve our neighbor out of the love you've demonstrated to us. Give us your will to continue the work of Jesus. And give us your spirit that we may inherit your kingdom. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Have a great night. We'll see you next week.